Welcome back to 64, a chess podcast. I am David. I'm back uh, with another fantastic episode. And uh, this week is a special treat for me because uh, longtime listeners of the podcast know that ever since I bought um, The Anand Files, a book about uh, Vichy Anand's World Championship run, uh, I've been uh, admiring that book. I've been praising it. Uh, and now I have uh, the author of that book with me today, uh, uh, Michiel Abel. He is a FIDE master from the Netherlands and, uh, you know, uh, in Dutch style, he is promoting his Dutch course uh, on the Leningrad Dutch. Um, that was a bit corny. Uh, so, Michiel, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you for having me on the show. I'm, I'm glad to have you. And uh, obviously, there's a lot I want to talk about today. Um, first of all, before we begin, uh, I do want to plug a couple of things on my end. Uh, I started streaming on Twitch again. You can follow me, and please do follow me uh, on Twitch, uh, twitch.tv slash chesscosmos, because while I don't want to reveal too much, I am planning uh, in 2022 to go into video streaming full-time. Uh, the podcast will become a video format as well as audio format, uh, and I want to do more content with uh, with video, so uh, there will be a lot more integration with streaming and with YouTube, so Stay tuned for that. But for now, the easiest thing to do would be to follow me on Twitch and on Twitter as well. We are rapidly approach, approaching uh, 500 followers on Twitter. So let's get that up there. Maybe I'll do uh, a giveaway or something. So follow me on Twitter at 64 podcast. Uh, you're also on Twitter. It's just your name, I think. Right. Yeah, uh, right. So, yeah. So f follow me on Twitter as well. And um, I also have a Patreon. Uh, if you want to check that out, it's uh, patreon.com slash 64 podcast. Uh, it would uh, mean a lot uh, to support the work that I do here, um, but that's all on my end. Uh, so yeah, I want to get right into this uh, this Leningrad Dutch course because uh, I'm uh, I'm always looking for stuff to play against one uh, D four, and uh, I uh, you know when we started talking, you told me you had this course you wanted to plug. So uh, first of all, why the Leningrad Dutch, and uh, second of all, uh, what are you hoping that people get out of that course? Yeah, I think. About a year ago, maybe a little bit longer, I got in touch with uh, Chessable on, on my book, The Announced Files, and how we could potentially use it on, on Chessable. And we found out that maybe it wasn't the best format uh, and, and not so suited for Chessable. Uh, because it's really a book for uh, reading on, on your own leisure and, and, and not so much about uh, learning something new. And then um, we start talking about my passion. And my real passion is uh, chess improvement, especially adult improvements. Um, and uh, I was thinking about how I could put that in a course. And then I noticed that on, on Chessable, the opening courses are a lot more popular than middle game and end game. So I was trying to combine the two in terms of how do I take an, an opening course, uh, but really make it a chess improvement course. And um, the obvious choice for me was then to take an opening that I've been playing for many, many years myself, which is the Leningrad. And actually, uh, the Leningrad really helped me when I picked it up uh, to improve my rating with nearly 200 rating points. From an, uh, yeah, uh, I was uh, uh, low 2200, and I, I was really stuck, uh, even at risk of dropping back to 2100, which is still a very decent, nice rating. Um, but I wanted to, to move it up, and I got it all the way up to 2393, so seven points shy of, of 2400. And uh, the reason is that uh, when I started studying the Leningrad, I came across a lot of strategic themes 
that I could also apply in my white games. And, and, and that really helped me to improve my overall chess understanding and my chess level. I see. So when you back when you picked up this course, um, how many years ago was this? And basically, what, how are you incorporating, uh, you know, engines and new top level games into the course? So I think I started playing the, the Leningrad more than 15 years ago, uh, based on a, on a book by a German grandmaster, Stefan Kindemann. And um, uh, over the years, I've made a lot of uh, improvements uh, myself based on uh, your own games. Uh, I mean, I still consider myself to be very much an amateur player. So you make a lot of mistakes. In fact, in, in the course, I've included a, a chapter called Bloopers, which is uh, only my own games with uh, all kinds of, all, all kind of blunders and things that went wrong, uh, really to help other amateurs not to make the same silly mistakes uh, as I did. And it, it was really painful to, to, to report some of those games because, to, to be honest, I had thrown away some of them and never wanted to look at those again. And now, now I had to. Um, but yeah, and then when I started developing the scores, um, for me, it's, it, I always take the same approach. So you see in the course the same approach as in, in the book, The Anand Files, that I take uh, quality over time. Uh, I'm not doing these type of jobs to, to make a lot of money. I, I really want to help people uh, progress further. So that means that uh, in this case, it took me about a year to complete the entire work. And every week, every single week, I've worked on the course for at least 20 hours, if not more. Wow. So, yeah. And, and that included a lot of checking with the strongest engines, so Leela, uh, Stockfish. Uh, while working on it, uh, new versions of Stockfish uh, appeared. So I had to really check everything again. Uh, and, and usually you see only minor differences, but still it's, it's good uh, to keep on checking. And I'm sure uh, while people uh, uh, buy the course, uh, they will ask me questions. There's a, a, even a more recent version now again of Stockfish 14. Uh, so I'm sure I'll, I'll get more questions on that uh, over the next year or so. Uh, and people say, hey, my engine is recommending this. Um, you, you know that engines uh, are becoming stronger and stronger, are much stronger actually than human beings. And that was one of the things that I noticed um, uh, in my Leningrad books. And I have a lot of books. I have the books uh, of, of uh, Michal Marin on the Leningrad. I have from a fence guy, the, the Mood. I have Hazai, uh, sorry, Karoi, uh, Kinderman. Uh, even an old book, I think, by, by McDonald. I, I must have maybe close to 10 books. But almost every opening book, and I, I don't think this is uh, just the case for uh, the Dutch Leningrad, is based on Grandmaster games. But when you analyze Grandmaster games with engine nowadays, there's, I don't know, a thousand points difference, yeah? 2,600 versus 3,600 or something. You, you, you just notice how bad grandmasters play even if they have 2650 so to take that as a basis for a book i think is is just not the right approach so i think the approach that i took as a basis is that uh, chess improvement means you want to simplify things you want to make sure that uh, it's consistency in, in its plans in the strategic themes but every time you check against the evaluation of the engine and, and I think that's a must-do and much more important than referring to a GEM game. And, and that's why I was so disappointed in, in all these books. Even the Marine book, it's, it's only a couple of months old. Uh, the number of 
mistakes and improvements I, I found over those two volumes, it's just uh, massive. Yeah, I mean, I do, I, I do want to stick to the Leningrad Dutch, but something I did, I did actually want to mention later. Uh, when I went through the non-files, or I'm taking it very slow because, like you said, quality, like time over and quality yeah. over is most important. Um, I, I've only got, I finished the non-Kramnik match completely, and I've gone through each game like three times up until two months ago. I had every game memorized. Uh, you know, I, I, I really was immersed in it, and we will talk about this later. But something I really noticed and appreciated was, I, I personally could not find a single error across all those chapters, not even a minor, you know, maybe you missed something in analysis. A everything that you put there was perfect. And, you know, I have I have books uh, that I've downloaded. You know, I had Kasparov's My Great Predecessors. I had the PDF, and there are mistakes there. You know, of course, back when he wrote it, it was different. Um, but that was something I really appreciated. And something I also that I've looked, because, I, I mean, I actually, I demoed the short and sweet um, most of the course uh, for you guys uh, to let you know that it, it seems really fantastic. You should definitely... I definitely check out the short and sweet version of this course because it's two and a half hours of video almost. Yeah, for uh, free. For free, and you get you get a lot of lines, and it's it's a system that is is pretty easy to play. Um, even if you're not going to be playing the main lines, the system seems pretty straightforward, and you the the rest of the lines can at least give you some ideas to start playing immediately. And certainly, if you like that, I'm sure the whole course is very deep. But something I've noticed is you're very active on the chessboard form as well. Uh, with yes. the feedback, you've got a lot of feedback and you're answering people. And I see that you also have promised in the course to update it later, which I think is really cool. I know other, I know other, um, other grandmasters and international masters who have their courses. They also do that, which is something I really like about the chessboard format that you can just edit the course, you know, when you find some new line or some new novelty or whatever, that's something you can't do with the normal book. Um, but is this something that you expect to keep keep uh, updating for the next few months, and maybe as more people use games or have questions? Well, yes and no. I mean, uh, yes, I'll keep updating, but not just for the next couple of months. I expect uh, for the next couple of years, and and that's uh, both on Chessable, but also on on Twitter. People can ask me questions around chess improvement. That's that's my main purpose with both the course accessible, but also with other things I do in chess and also on Twitter, that uh, even if, if you don't buy the course on, on the Leningrad, uh, you may still want to ask me questions around uh, chess improvement. Well, start following me on Twitter. You will see that I start publishing more and more there. At the moment, I'm, I'm publishing a lot of book reviews and also some of the uh, pictures I took at the, uh, the uh, Grandmaster tournaments I visited, like Linares and Tata from a long time ago. Uh, I think the other day I, I posted Magnus Carlsen when he was like 12 years that. old. Yeah. yeah, that was really, really yeah. cool. But I really want to invite people. I, I think chess improvement is is um, um, a marketing term that's sometimes being abused. I think almost every bookseller, every chess publisher, every book they publish, they say that it will help you improve, which I think is, is, is complete nonsense. So I think it's a, it's a very difficult topic uh, that requires a lot of uh, dedication and, and, and personal attention. And, 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 and that's what I have a lot of energy for and where I want to help. Yeah, I 100% I, I agree. And, and, you know, as much as I, I mean, I've bought hundreds of chessboard courses, not actually hundreds, but I bought a lot of chessboard courses in my day. And, you know, everyone promises, uh, you know, oh, you start using this and you will crush people instantly. And of course, um, that's not oh, that's not really true with chess. Chess is a very deep game for a reason. Um, but you know, with regards to your opening, 
I guess if you had to, you know, sell it in a sentence, what kind of opening are you proposing uh, to people who might be interested in finding the course? So the, the, the Leningrad is a really an opening where it comes down to understanding and strategic concepts and the number of pawn structures is relatively limited. So it's easy to digest and easy to rem remember for an amateur. I actually, and I was just watching uh, Hikaru Nakamura's stream earlier today. And he said, you know, if you really want to improve, you should learn openings where there are very few structures where you can always put the pieces in the same places. That's from a super grandmaster. So that sounds, that sounds fantastic. Um, and Nakamura is one of the, the big fans of playing in Leningrad. There are a lot of Nakamura games in, the, in uh, my course. Uh, besides, by the way, you see all the top players, and you also see Caruana, you see Anis Giri, you see Danny uh, Dubov. They all play the Leningrad. Nepomniachtchi, yeah, the the world championship uh, candidate. Yeah. Oh, and and we will uh, we will talk about the world championship as well. I mean, that's actually I think um, you know a, a a very nice segue into. I want to talk a little bit about this Anon Files book. I'm showing on the screen. I have it right here. Uh, I brought it with me from America all the way to Denmark. Here's you on the back. Yeah. The book. Now, I want to say, you know, I've talked about this book in detail. I was not paid to say this, but um, you mentioned that this is a book on 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 leisure, uh, like uh, something that you should like really just be able to read. I completely agree. And I think, you know, compared to, you know, this growing chess library I have, that was something that was very striking to me because I really don't I'm not sure I've really, it, you know, it, it's obviously it's a game collection. It's history. But um, I, there's. You know, these you really are immersed into the story. You know, I, I wasn't a, even a chess player in 2008. I, I, I didn't follow chess. I only picked up a few years ago. But reading the book really, like, made you feel like you were – really feel like you're living through the match. And I don't think – even if you don't know that much about chess, even if you ignore the games, there's enough in the narrative that you can – I learned so much about how the World Championship teams are formed and, you know, how all these – uh the team dynamics and, you know, all these stories, uh, you know, Surya getting sick with chicken pox and, uh, you know, all these little <laughs> anecdotes that, that like, I'm sure I, I had never even heard of before. And, you know, after I read that book, I was like, I need to get, like, Peter Heine Nielsen on this podcast. I need to get Surya Angulo on this podcast. I need to get Vichy on the podcast. Anyone just to talk about these matches because, like, it, it's such a, there's such a rich story around it. And then, you know, when you actually go through the games, you feel that tension. And the games are fantastic. You know, I actually, I recently switched from E4 to D4. I played E4 my like entire time of playing chess, basically. And just from these 12 games, seeing all these ideas in the Slav that Vichy and, and, and Vlad uh, were both playing, uh, you know, I, I feel like just, I really feel like it was just like at home from like really grinding and, and learning those games and learning how, so, you know, I, it's fantastic. And also, you know, also uh, I started playing the Queen's Game Accepted because of this book, because you had a little thing yeah. in there and there's like this little mini repertoire. Again, I, again, I just got up to the Topalov match. I'm really taking it slow, but I'm, I'm like a third of the way through. And I already think this is like one of the best chess books like that's ever been written. So, you know, I'm, oh. I'm so, I'm so glad like that, that to have you on the show. And again, I wasn't paid to say any of this. I just think uh, it, it's like, it's kind of, it's exactly like you said, it's like a book that you don't need. You don't need to have that pressure of like, oh, I need to buy this like positional decision-making by Boris Gelfand and like sit there and, and that's all improve. Like, you can also just read chess books for fun. I think that's really important for improvement too. Oh yes, and also the, these books by 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 Gelfand. Let's be honest. Which I also have. <laughs> yeah, but to be honest, and and I hope you're not gonna hate me for saying this, uh, these type of books are really for twenty four hundred plus players, and 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 they're being pitched 
like they're great for chest improvement, but they're they're just way too difficult. And yeah, they're very hard. Yeah. And actually, when I look at, at at most of the material that comes out from chest publishers nowadays, uh, it's 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 aimed at a level from they pretend fourteen hundred to to twenty six hundred, but it doesn't work that way. And and many of these books uh, are, are just too difficult. I, I read um, a blog. I don't know if he was already on your show from uh, Niklas Studer, and uh, grandmaster from oh, Noel, Switch. Noel, Noel from Switzerland. Yeah, I haven't had him yet. I, maybe next month. We've talked a little bit. Noel, yeah. And um, I think he makes a great point somewhere that when you do exercises in uh, in a chess uh, book, you should try to get at least seventy percent correct within fifteen minutes. And I, I think that's a great benchmark. And when you start doing that, then you realize that maybe 70% of your chess library is too difficult. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and the, that's why I always say on, on my own book, The Anand Files, it's not a book for instruction, although uh, quality chess may say so. In fact, I would say it's not even a book for everyone. Uh, but I do recommend for everyone, especially if you consider uh, buying the chessable course on the Leningrad to at least read the reviews on the Anand files because that will tell you how I worked and 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 uh, how I've done that and and the approach that I took for the book is the same as the approach I did for the course so that I do recommend but I fully realize that chess books are normally for a very small market and I, I didn't write that book to to, to make money. I just wanted to write about a topic where I felt had not been covered. I was curious myself what was happening behind the curtains of, of a world championship match. Uh, what was the strategy? What were the team dynamics? Those kind of things. And, 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 and that's why I wrote that book. But I can also understand that a lot of people say, well, Fijianand, this is a long time ago. Uh, I'm not so much into chess history. Yeah. Uh, then don't buy the book. Yeah. yeah? Yeah, I mean, I I think it's really like I what I what I've told like my friends who play chess is, if you're gonna buy the book, buy it because you want to learn about the history of, of the game. Yeah. I think it's, it's it's way more of a history book than a chess book. Although yeah. there is a lot of chess in there that you can get out. You know, I'm I'm currently actually I'm taking this little F3 Nimzo thing you put in there, the hammer thing, yeah. and I'm turning it into my own little chess bowl thing because I started learning the F3 Nimzo recently. So I'm turning it into my own little thing to. There is my point is there is a lot of chess there, but I, I consider it a history book, and um, that's actually like for me it, in the next few months and years. That's actually the, that stories like these are the ones that I actually really want to kind of work on in terms of content because I think that there is nothing like that in in chess. It's all about you know learned openings or you know positional improvement or end games and and kind of marketing that to people. But I also think that it's very important for people to also just get appreciation for the players and uh, the culture and the history of the game, because that's really what lives on. That's what's lived on longer than theory. You know, that the fact that we can play games from, you know, the 1600s on our tables 400 years later, that's the stuff that lives on. So, I, I mean, I, I, it's really like one of my, my favorite, like, I'm not even say chess books. It's one of like the best books I've ever read. I bought this this summer on the recommendation mm -hmm. of uh, Eugene Perlstein and, yeah. And now look back. And this is like, this is like a book that I'm opening every time I have like a nice uh, one or two hours to just have a nice cup of coffee or tea and uh, with yeah. open up my chessboard. So it's been fantastic. And actually the reason why I think it's, it's great to have you is because you mentioned, you know, getting insights into world championship team. 
Um, just a, like a little sneak peek, like what were some of the things that you learned about like the the, the world championship caliber team and the assembly of that team and that you didn't know before you started writing the book? Oh, there, there were so many things, but I, I think uh, one of the striking things for me is that first of all, I hadn't realized that when you become a second to help someone who's a world championship challenger or, or, or already the world champion, is that creates all, already a bit of a hierarchy. Uh, it, it's like you're working for someone who, who's really way up above the rest, even if you have 2,600 yourself. Uh, the difference in understanding is, is still tremendous at that level. So in, in that way, you get quite a bit of distance. And then when you translate that into team dynamics, what you see is that uh, it's easy to, to do the work, to, to start checking lines uh, with an engine and, and do your opening work. But when you actually come to the match and, and you want to help the player uh, to win that title, you also need to coach that player, uh, not just hand over your opening uh, work. And that coaching bit is incredibly difficult. And I, I don't think a lot of attention is paid to that in, in, in the chess world. But how do you talk to uh, Magnus Carlsen or in this case, Vici Anand, if you think that he uh, should do something differently or, or, or is just making mistakes? And I write about some, some episodes where uh, Rustam Kazanjanov is doing this. And to me, I, I really feel that he made a huge difference in that team by being able to speak up, uh, which took a lot of courage from him uh, because it could also have been uh, the end of his role in the team. He could have lost his job. But I think uh, he was really instrumental in, in Anand winning three times the World Championship title. And, you know, Rustam also, he it's not like he was, uh, you know, and you write about this in the book that yeah, when he joined Anand's team, he very much still could have had his own aspirations to join, you know, to play in the candidates or he was still an extremely strong player. Uh, and also you kind of get hints of that now. Like we know that Anish Giri is, is working to some capacity with Magnus and you kind of have to wonder, like, how is that going to impact his own ambitions? Because we saw he had this in the candidates. He had this incredible run uh, in the second half, uh, like uh, unbelievable momentum. And so for me to see him working with Magnus, I was a little surprised because I, okay, maybe he wants to just get in some insight on how a world championship team looks to prepare for next year. But uh, I also felt like that kind of hierarchy, that's something that doesn't really go away psychologically. If, if he, I, I, again, I don't know to what extent Anish is working with Magnus. Um, and we see hints, still see hints from this match, uh, the, the Anon matches and the Anon team. You had Kazin Dijanov working with Caruana until they had very recently acrimony split. And of course, Peter Hein Nielsen, uh, he works with Magnus now. Uh, so I, I think it's it's pretty cool, uh, kind of to see the the legacy of, of that match. You know, very much still at the uh, or even the early version of the team. Obviously, Surya is very involved in coaching the uh, the Indian future and uh, Radic Vojtacek. I think he he's kind of uh, he's he's hasn't been on the chess radar in a while, but he, of course, he's a very strong player as well. No, Radek is playing a lot. He's currently participating in Riga in, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. in the Grand Swiss. Yeah. I have been looking at some of his games. And actually, speaking of, are you following the Grand Swiss? You know, I, the, the games have just uh, finished recently. Have you, do you follow like active tournament chess or do you mostly, uh, are you more interested in, in writing and, and coaching? No, I do. I do follow. And uh, I looked at uh, some of the Grand Swiss games even, uh, even uh, today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
So, you know, I, I'm wondering what you think, you know, uh, ha having, you know, I, I still want to actually talk a little bit about the non-files before I forget, because I was, I was very curious as I was reading this first third of like, how did you actually organize where it was a mix of interviews? I, I mean, how did you get all these perspectives? How do you combine them all into this one, one coherent narrative? So in, in the end, I, I got up to more than 100 hours of, of, of interviews, uh, all uh, recorded, mainly through Skype, although Kazim Janov, I actually visited at, at his house oh, very nice. for, uh, for multiple days for each match. Uh, so I went there three times. Um, but the, the problem is that um, uh, before you can interview them, you need to uh, do a lot of preparation even more than if, if you're playing a chess game yourself. Um, because these people are very used to giving comments after a game to journalists. So if you just ask them the obvious questions, then you get the obvious answers. And you will not get any of the dirt. You will not get any of the, of the juicy stories. So what I had to do is, is to try to trick them. And the only way at least I can trick people is if, if I prepare very well and if I think upfront of, of almost tricking strategies. So what I did was that, first of all, I, I collected everything that was written about it. So a lot of re research on, on the internet, uh, even uh, something called the Wayback Machine that I went to internet websites that went yeah, down awesome. already yeah. and, 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 and that you can still find back in, in that way. Uh, you get to newspapers in India, for example, or the Times, etc. And, and in that way, I collected a lot of material. Uh, also, in, in uh, Denmark, there's a uh, magazine that's called uh, Skakbladet. And I, I, I don't speak or read Danish, but I had uh, to try to translate all the articles that news published there on, on the matches. And in that way, uh, on top of the 100 interview hours with all, all, all four of them, you get a lot of info. But in the interviews, I would then also usually before that, uh, sorry that I forgot that, uh, check the uh, opening that was played. And I would also check what the seconds were playing after the matches. Because those games were not always, or those opening lines were not always used in the match. Yeah, you're right and that's also I, I also something i found very interesting is how you know where you you uh the post-mortem of the match you say well how did the rest of this opening you know because because all the prep you know you you just sit on it the seconds use it eventually so it's very interesting to see how do the guys who are a little weaker who came up with this stuff how do they actually use it in battle and practice and you get those full games too which is very cool yeah but what you also see is, uh, and you may not have, re have reached that part in, in the book yet, is that uh, sometimes they, they, they work on something for weeks. They prepare a certain file. It never gets on the board during the match. They play it after the match, but they cannot remember. And they even lose with it what was a winning line. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't seen any. I've seen examples in so far of, you know, uh, of a mistake in the openings that they didn't check until last second. Actually, Caruana talks about this very recently. That one of the his main line of the Petrov apparently was like a forced loss that they, that yes. they missed. And they yes, I read that. that. Fascinating. That. What did you think about that interview? Um, by the way, with uh, with Chess, I thought it was a fantastic interview. Yeah, it was a great interview. Yeah, yeah. In in general, I think it's a great website. And uh, yeah. some of this work, I don't know if this particular interview. I think it may have been done by my friend Peter Doggers. It was Peter Doggers who. Yeah. Yeah. 
and, and Peter has been around in the chess scene uh, for 20 years and always has put quality first. And, and I think that's, that's what you see coming through also in this interview. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that, you know, uh, quality work is always better than, than brute force. Uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's always better to do uh, quality. And it's certainly, I mean, it was, it was I, I replied on Twitter, it's quite simply like the best chess interview I think I've read all year. Very instructive. And yeah, I didn't it really, it was just more world championship stuff. I'm very excited. Right, what do you think about the match? I will ask you later, like your actual prediction, but just in general, like, what do you think about this match between uh, Magnus and, and Nepo? Yeah, I think uh, that initially in this match, the games uh, might become a bit dry. And, and the reason I'm thinking this is that uh, one scenario, which I don't think is going to happen uh, initially, is that you get wild games. And in a wild game, uh, Magnus is, is clearly the better player, but there's also the risk that he will lose. Yeah. And I think initially he doesn't want to take that risk. Initially, what he wants to test is how uh, Jan is, is uh, dealing with the stress. So I think, uh, and also Jan is, is a very dynamic player. So I think in, in terms of match strategy, I expect Magnus to go for the more uh, dry positional uh, type of positions with hopefully a slight pool uh, where he can try for a while. Of course, that's easier said than done, but I think that will dictate a bit uh, his choices in opening repertoire. Uh, so I would not expect very spectacular chess in, in the first three, four games. No. Do you have a sense of maybe what openings we might expect? Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, three years ago, we had the Russell Limo and the Slash Veshnikov. That was like in, uh, you know, that was like high fashion in the chess world. Everyone and their, and their friend was playing the... Uh, the the Rosalimo or the Sveshnikov to some degree. Uh, do you have any kind of sense of, of what we might expect in terms of openings? No, not a specific opening, but I, I would expect that uh, Jan will play uh, relative new openings and, and not stick to uh, what he's been playing for a long time. I think uh, I would expect him to have, have a great team uh, in, in Russia with, with people like... Uh, uh, Potkin, maybe Naya, who's now playing in, in the Grand Swiss, uh, Artemiev, so, some other uh, people, uh, easily seven, eight people. Yeah, uh, Naya's fantastic results at the Grand Swiss, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Not, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, if not, he, I, he blundered this uh, the threefold repetition against uh, Fabi. He should have won that game. He would have been a top of the candidates. Uh, I, was I, I, don't, I don't think he, he blundered that. I think that position is a complete draw. Well, well, he he called it a blunder himself. So I, yeah, I mean, that's that may be just above my pay grade. Uh, <laughs> but, but, I, uh, I didn't, I, I didn't hear that, and and, and maybe, maybe it's my lack of chess level. But I thought it was a was a very simple fortress where White could not do anything anymore. And I think earlier in the game he had good chances, but not at that point anymore. Yeah. Why? Well, because he he called it. Uh, I, I looked through the game and he, he. I mean, it was obviously like a fortress like, but he called it. He said he he said in the interview after that he he blundered into the threefold, and so I. Yeah. Uh, but he's he's you know he's a five way tie for the top, and Shirov there too is also you know he was the last last minute replacement, and he's at uh, he he held on against Ali Reza who's on fire. It's, I mean, this is a fantastic event. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I it's I, I'm very interested really to see who's on the teams this year because I ever since I read this book, I, I I've thought about these World Championship matches completely different way, because you really you really get a sense. Uh, obviously, you know, the World Championship match is always going to be the name against the name at the end of the day, but the the, the teams are massive, the resources are massive. I think also the non-files probably was the first the 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 2008 championship especially was really the first year that computers were blowing humans out of the water too, so that yeah. was like really the first World Championship where you had computer prep like. Uh, was the 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 difference uh, between and and especially now with Lila or whatever? I mean, we're going to be seeing like thirty six hundred level chess for the first twenty moves probably of most of these games. Yes, yes, but also I think every decent chess player can handle and deal with the engine. I think it's very hard to find grandmasters, and you need to have that level who can add ideas on top of what the engine comes up with. And that's a very special skill. So you cannot just randomly select a, a group of 26 or even 2700 players and put them in your team and think that they will come up with great ideas. Um, because many of them don't have the skill. And, and that's why also not just Grand Swiss, but you see it in other tournaments also, that uh, with as of the level 2600, an increasing number of games enter in, in, in draws without too much of a fight. And the reason is both players use the same engines, uh, they use the same uh, opening theory, uh, and they're not able to add new ideas to the engine. And the ideas that the engine comes up with, yeah, everybody sees. So that's not how you make the difference. But if, if you think back about uh, the candidates, um, Caruana didn't win. But there were at least one or two ideas. I remember an idea in, in the Slav. Well, Fabi had normally never played the, the Slav before. And there was just a fantastic idea by Kazanjanov. I think the fact that he's able to produce those type of ideas makes him a very special segment. And I think uh, in, in Russia, people like uh, Potkin can do that. Um, I think in, in, in Magnus' team, the person who's probably best at this is, is Gusti. Uh, young Gustafsson, uh, but it, it, it's a very rare skill. Yeah, I also think young Gustafsson too is, a, is someone who's for for some reason he's uh, I and maybe it's just because he's also such a funny, charismatic guy and on the Chess Twenty Four. But I think you know the fact he, what he brings to the table to the team is is very much uh, understated because I it yeah. seems to me from the games I've looked at he's very creative, very yes, creative player. Yeah, uh, yeah. So it's I that, that's uh, that's a very good point. I wonder, you know, I, I normally I ask this, and uh, and I have a little sponsor section at the end. But um, who are, who do you think is going to win this match between uh, Magnus and Nepo? Um, I think to me, Magnus is is, is the clear favorite, and 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 it's it's uh, for at least two reasons. One is uh, if you look historically at chess matches, uh, what you see is that whoever became world champion, there was some logic in there. And uh, uh, that you say, oh, yes, the chess world moved into that direction and it made sense that now that person uh, became world champion. And I find it very hard at this moment to uh, see the logic why Nepom Niyachi uh, would be the next one, uh, the next world champion. It's, it's very different and, and not applicable, what I'm saying, if, if you look at the knockout tournaments. But in, in world championship matches, uh, there was always a, a normal logic to it. The, the second reason is that 
if Magnus wins this uh, title, uh, it's another one for him. He's done it many times before, and he's won many fantastic tournaments. But uh, for Nepo Miyazzi, uh, winning this would be a major step up. He hasn't won so many big tournaments yet. Um, of course, he, he, he won the candidates, uh, were very strange tournament uh, over, I agree. over a year. But if you, if you look at, at his progression, yes, he's becoming stronger and stronger. But it feels like um, uh, now winning the title is a bit early. You would expect him first to win a couple more tournaments. If, if you look, for example, at Caruana, when he was playing uh, the match against uh, Magnus, he was winning tournaments left, right, and center. He, he yeah. remembers Sigfield, where where he started with I don't know seven or eight seven, straight. Yeah, wins. seven seven straight wins. Yeah, uh, he won the candidates, and immediately after the candidates, he went to the uh, Grank uh, tournament, and he won that as well. Yeah, a few days later, fantastic. <laughs> yeah, he had an unbelievable and, year. And, and you could just see that he was playing at his best. And and for Jan, I I miss that piece of evidence still. Although I do think I do think he's become um, much more stable in terms of results. I think Jan, yeah, Jan has really found like a kind of stability that he didn't have even like two years ago, which is, I think is good. But you're what you're basically saying is that the the world championship is more like a throne. You have to be ready for it. Yes. So when uh, you know you obviously you wrote about Anand and and his three uh, his three matches. I know Kasparov had this kind of petty complaint in 2012 when Anand played Gelfand, saying, "Oh well, neither one of them is really number one, and uh, you know, if, if whoever wins, they're not like really, you know, the the most, they're not really the best chess player. The World Championship doesn't mean something to that degree. Um, was there that kind of sense back in 2013 when Magnus played Anand that okay, it's Anand's time to go? Like it was kind of expected that Anand wasn't going to win. No, I think." Uh... Not at that point yet. So the fact that it happened, yes, it, it was a clear switch in, in uh, chess history, and it makes sense. But it could also have happened uh, two years later, that Anand uh, would have stayed another two years and, and Magnus then. So in, in that sense, no, but both options were open. I think uh, with Kasparov, um, it's funny, but when you, when you start analyzing the remarks he makes, um, it, it, it feels to me like uh, only a, a minority of his remarks really make, make a lot of sense. I didn't uh, say they made sense. Yeah, it, yeah. It, it's just, he, he's making a lot of noise and, and he always gets attention. Of course, he, he's a fantastic, uh, brilliant person, uh, fantastic chess history. But I think uh, some of his remarks, he, he's damaging people, he's, he's hurting them. And, and he's also able to say one day A and the, the next day B. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, especially when it comes to, uh, to uh, people's reputation. They don't appreciate that he does that. Yeah, no, of course. But it may, I think maybe a part of it just comes down to the competitive fire that he has, so especially... Maybe, you know, I mean, Anand was also his, you know, they, they played a world championship against each other. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe psychologically, he, he still was seeing Anand at the top and then feeling, I can't, I can't say. Maybe I have to get Kasparov on the, on the podcast to ask him about that. But, uh, yeah. Yeah. no, but it's funny. He, he was in, in 16 in the Sofia match. You will, you will read about that later in the book. 
Oh, really? There you go. Yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I got up to the, I got up to the volcano. I did not realize that the, the Iceland volcano played a role in the world championship match. And so that yeah. was pretty, I, I laughed pretty hard a couple of weeks ago when I, when I opened up and I saw that, uh, you know, yeah. cause I, I actually remember that ex it was right around my birthday. It was April. And I think I was, ha it wasn't exactly a birthday party, but suddenly we got this news that nobody could fly anywhere because it's Icelandic, yeah. like Icelandic volcano and all the people trying to pronounce it in America. And then suddenly like 11 years later, or whatever, I'm reading about the same volcano and I have such a vivid memory of those pictures. So that was like, but that's what I was saying before. I mean, it, it's really like a history book. You, you could also just get a game compilation of, okay. And this was on game one where, you know, uh, Tapal sacrificed the night and uh, yeah. But it, it was not like that. Yeah. Are, are you are you considering working on another project kind of like the non-files or maybe like a, a different kind of like chess history book in that way? Because I think um, your style is very suited for it. I, I like like I said, I, I, I if there were more books like this, I would buy one like this on every World Championship match because I mean, obviously, like history like this has must exist for every World Championship match of the last 150 years. But very <laughs> often we just kind of get them as uh, as game as annotated collections by the guy who played the games and kind of like you said you know if you just want to ask the players who worked on the team about the games they'll give you the standard oh yeah so there's this bishop move on c8 and this was the difference you don't really learn about the history you don't really learn about the dynamic you don't really learn about like chess chess yeah, yeah. um i don't have an i i would love to but i don't have a concrete idea at the moment and uh i've actually uh discussed this with some of the team members of, of, of team Magnus uh, after the announced files came out and, and, and their response was, was very clear. Oh, uh, Vichy's team was way too open to you. We would never do that. So, <laughs> Well, this is actually something I was going to ask you. Yeah. Like how, 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 how willing were, I mean, obviously like Peter Hyde Nielsen also works with Magnus, but how willing generally were they to kind of share, were they willing to like kind of share these stories about, uh, because uh, you know, also I remember when I was reading the Amazon bio, it says something like unprecedented look into like the team dynamic, and I was like, well, yeah, that's what everyone says, but you really do get a really uh, in-depth uh, uh, insights into like the 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 way the team played with each other, and uh, even uh, Vishy's wife. You learned about the role that she played, Aruna, right? I think uh, that's very very cool. You you could turn this into a movie. You really could. You could you could turn this into a, like Queen's Gambit version. Yeah, Netflix can call me any day. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, seriously, I think your question on how open were they, uh, some are more open than others. Uh, I think we all know that, that uh, Peter Heine is, is, is not very open. He's, he's very political. He, he knows what to say and what, what not to say. So he won't, get, won't give away secrets. But I did get something uh, from him by saying, hey, uh, you wrote this in the, in the Dennis Chess magazine, and this is what I actually see happening. Can you explain to me why? And then he has to come up with an answer, of course. Um, and, and, and the other thing is that with the, with, with the other three, with Radek, Surya, and, and, and Rustam, I built a, a good trust relationship. And, and, and then they start opening up more. It, it takes time, but that really helped. Mm -hmm. And when they start opening up, then you can use the info you get from the other seconds uh, in the interviews with them. And, 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 and that, that really works well. That you say, hey, uh, but I understand this, this and that happened. Uh, and you can even sometimes speculate a little bit or, or bluff a little bit. Yeah? 
and 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 then uh, see how they respond. All, all in all, like, what was the most uh, what was the most memorable experience for you for writing, for writing the book? Like, maybe, well, maybe an interview or, or an anecdote or or, or just uh, something about the the creative process itself. But what was something that was very like very memorable for you as you were working on this uh, book? Well, I think most memorable for me is the fact that. Um, I really have uh, built good good relationships, good good friendships with these people, mm-hmm. and 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 I've invested a lot of time. They've invested a lot of time. For them, it was also special. I mean, uh, Surya, for example, Surya Ganguly told me that yes, he gets uh, thousands of of questions uh, through his chess career on on games, etc. But he never had experienced someone who was so well prepared and who went so deep into the questions. Yeah, I, I could ask him questions about a, a rook end game on which I had spent a week analyzing it before asking him the questions, which of course is very different than someone who quickly looks at an en- engine and asks him something af- after the game for, for a flash report. Um, so I think that, that's the most memorable thing just on how I, how I worked it and uh, then how it came about. Uh, the other thing is that, of course, uh, as I said before, uh, I'm not a professional writer. Uh, so for me, uh, this was my first book ever. Uh, I threw away the, the first three versions that I wrote about this book because I wasn't happy with the quality. Uh, so I did a lot of uh, rewriting and extra work. And, and for me, it was a very exciting but also nervous process to go through to sent sample pages to chess publishers, see if, if they liked it. And then once it came out to actually see that people enjoy it, and, and my email is in, at, the, at the start of the book, and that people actually take the effort to, to send a thank you email uh, and have questions uh, that I can answer, that, that makes it very special for me. Because for me, it's a bit similar like on the Chessable Forum where you see that I'm active or on Twitter. I just love the engagement with people. I think also, you know, it's 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 really uh, it's remarkable how many more people have got it into chess, uh, yeah. and that's something. You know, I'm in Denmark now. I'm I'm from the United States. I'm here until June. I was here two years ago, and and I, there's this uh, there's this board game cafe called Bastard Cafe uh, in in Copenhagen, and you can just like pick up a chess board for free if you go with friends. You could play. And the first time I was ever there, maybe was the only person who, who who played chess there. It was a packed night at night. Everybody's playing their other board games. I was there with with uh, one of my friends, and me and her were uh, we we just we took we took a chess board, and she had never played chess, so I started like showing her some of the rules. Uh, when I say that you could ha- you could not find a chess board uh, when I was there this past weekend, I mean it. Like yeah. there was maybe like. 10 chess boards there and they're all gone we managed to find one that like like on some table in the end but i was really shocked by how many people okay i, I don't know if i'm not saying that it, you know it's a, some super grandmasters brewing and but it seemed like average people just getting into chess and um like like i said before i think like a book like that not files for people who want to learn about the history i really think you don't even need to if you didn't even have the chess games there uh it would just be a a, a, a very nice book because I, I just I, I can I, I can tell you like uh, just as someone who's a fan of the book I'm sorry for you know fanboying so hard but but I really love this book and uh, I, I can't recommend it enough so anyone you know if you're listening to this podcast and 
you want to think about buying a book, maybe maybe don't buy that uh, that difficult calculation book. Uh, maybe maybe get a book like this. It, it's something different if you're interested in history, because I think uh, the the work you put in was great. And uh, the last thing I wanted to ask you about that book, did you you also wrote the annotations, right? Yes. Because I thought also the, the annotations are were a, a very very high level. It, it seemed like I mean obviously you spent so much time looking at these games, but it, it, you know even even the games on the you know. Dragon Sicilian and stuff like that, that were, had nothing to do with the World Championship, just some lines. I mean, everything was, is very well uh, researched, very clear commentary. I, I learned a lot about a lot of these openings just by reading your annotations. I was very, very thoroughly impressed by the amount of information in here on the chess side, too. And I don't even consider it a chess book in that sense. Yeah, yeah, no, true. And, and it reminded me again, you asked about things that I remember and anecdotes, is that. Um, I was extremely nervous because there's a game in, in the Sofia match against uh, Topolov where uh, Vichy is, is uh, uh, messing up things in the opening. He needs to sacrifice his queen and then he's going for a fortress. And I was analyzing that game and my conclusion was that the fortress that he chose with which he made a draw actually could have been broken and that there was another fortress which would have been better. But the problem is these type of fortresses, you cannot verify with an engine. They always give, give a clear advantage for white. So I was so nervous in writing that down and, and sending the full book to Vichy, basically saying, <laughs> you made a mistake and I think I know better. <laughs> so it, it's those kind of things that I sometimes think back of and then, yeah, yeah. To what extent, how, how much did you speak? I also didn't ask this. How much did you actually speak to Vichy about, about this, this book? Uh, did, how many interviews did you have with him? So a little bit, uh, not too much, but also uh, a bit. And I've known him for, for a long time. Uh, I think the first time I met him must have been somewhere in, in the 90s. Mm -hmm. And I visited him in, in, over, the, over the years in many Tournaments. I even remember that uh, in uh, in the Netherlands he used to play in in Wijkenzee. Uh, before his son was born, his wife Aruna was always in the press room, and I would chat to her. She was usually uh, reading a book, and she was asking me for for the evaluation, uh, which of course was, was hard. Uh, this was pre-engine engine days, so I've known him for a long time, and and that definitely helped in in. Uh, uh, lending the book and i think uh the foreword by him is, is just uh fantastic yeah absolutely i agree i think it's uh it's it's a real real stamp of approval to have yeah yeah it's also interesting you know i because i have read some of the i've read i have read little bits and pieces of the whole match um like game one of the sofia match and also i've looked at one or two of the gelfand games like i i know gelfand's like disastrous blunder in the you know the shortest world championship match ever like a uh, game sorry mm -hmm. ever uh, you know, I, I looked at that game and the annotations you had there. Uh, and then if this positional decision-making book, I also have by Boris, the back of that book is an interview with, uh, Jakob Ogard on like, uh, just after the, the match and how he's so tired. So it was funny to see the other side of the curtain too, but, yeah. uh, which I think, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting, you know, cause with, you know, the fact that we're like three weeks and some change from another world championship match. Uh, I, I'm very glad I read that book this summer. I started to read it um, because it, 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 it's been giving me insights into, into the way chess works. And I can't say it enough. I really think that there needs to be kind of more stories told like this in chess, even if it's not necessarily about a world chess championship. I think those are the kinds of things that uh, I think really kind of enrich the, 
the game and it'll get a lot of people interested in a way that that maybe a, a chessable course can't and that's what when you mentioned uh you know that you tried to turn this into a chessable course i would have been surprised if it would have worked because i just don't i'm not sure that the chessable format is super suited for these kind of narrative things maybe that's something they could work on in the future but like you know all these nice pictures that you have and that you get in the yeah you do that with the chessable course yet yeah, amazing pictures by my friend Kathy Rogers. High quality and, and some of the very special moments when you see one of the players resigning. Yeah. And she took a picture. And you even see some press conference where, where you see Fishy and you see Vlad, Vlad Mirkanik. And, and, and Vlad is, is smiling a little bit and, and, and Fishy is, is looking uh, very straight and, and you don't see any emotion. And, and you... If, if you would have to guess, you would think that, that Vlad would have won the title. But actually, yeah. that picture is taken at the moment when he's three points down. <laughs> I, but Vlad, I think, also has, uh, has of course, has a lot of respect for Vichy. But I, it, there's this funny, uh, I, I don't know much about the relation, but it seems like they're very friendly with each other at the very least. Uh, I yes. played this, they played in Dortmund, I think it was. They played a no-castling match a couple of months ago. And then Peter Heiden Nielsen had this comment like, it was a no castling match, but they didn't castle in like half the games of that match. So it was like, oh, of course they're playing no castling against each other. They had, you know, that was like their world championship match. So I thought it was pretty funny. Now, I think uh, initially their relationships were uh, a bit difficult. And, and you can read about that in, in, in the book when uh, Vlad said something about lending the title. And I think only after um, uh, Fischi won uh, the title uh, from Vlad, the relationship uh, slowly improved and I think there, were, there was even a very uh, clear turning point and that is in, in, in the Sofia match when, when Vlad uh, was part of Fischi's team mm -hmm. and I don't know if you, if you read about that already I haven't gone up to that but <laughs> I can't wait so sorry, sorry for giving away all. No worries, no worries, no worries. All these juicy details, you know, for people who who want sneak peeks of the book, it's it's worth it. And yeah. like I said, I'm going to read this. I I really read this book very slowly to to get all the info I can. So it's not an issue. And That's I think we, I think much later there was a candidate tournament after Fishy had lost the title to Magnus, where Fishy wasn't sure if he would participate or not. And it was actually Vlad who convinced him to do that. And I think since then, uh, they've become uh, very close friends. What, what do you think in the... This is the last question I want to ask you about this book. Because uh, in my opinion, and I've talked about this on my Twitter, I think, I think Vichy Anand somehow is, is criminally underrated. Uh, in terms of like his career, I, I think you know, every, a lot is said about uh, Carlson and Kasparov. Um, but I think like Vichy's, uh, Vichy's career is, 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 in my opinion, is, is phenomenal. And also the kind of the way he evolved as a player, but what do you think his legacy is as a, as a world champion? No, I, I agree. I think it's highly underestimated. I think not just in, uh, uh terms of chess results, uh, which also speak for themselves, but I think also India, like if you look at the Indian grandmasters have gone from one to you know probably in the next 10 years they'll be number one or number two in the world exactly i, I think the the change he's made for chess in india uh, on on such a big population and being such an inspiring person is is very much underestimated outside india and and i think what he has achieved there is, is just phenomenal and uh, i don't think uh, magnus has has done something like that yet 
But I think if, if you want to compare it to, to something, it's, it's maybe the result that the Queen's Gambit has uh, currently on, on the chess world, where you see yeah. a lot of people playing. That's what Fishy has done uh, by himself in, in India, is inspiring everyone to step up and, and, and to start playing and, and start training and coaching. And it, it, it's really, as far as I know, become the number two sport in, in India, just behind cricket. Uh, from a position where it, it initially was absolutely nowhere. And, and yeah, so I think uh, fully agree with you. It's very much underestimated. You know, you also, you bring up cricket, but this may just be an American thing. Cause you know, I've talked about this in the podcast. Fabiano is, uh, is he, he's a f- phenomenal player. And you know, but also somebody, he was like 2851 and he was tied with Magnuson rating when they played each other. Fabi's an animal. But when we were, when he was in the world championship three years ago, uh, American press, there was maybe one or two articles written about him, and that was it. They weren't playing, a, you know, no, nobody was really paying attention. And I, I, I was sitting in my college classes watching the games in the morning. I would have it on my phone. Oh, no. what? There's a move being made. I followed his books more. The, the games, like, uh, I followed them like morning to afternoon. Yeah, you know, I, I, I wake up especially early just to, you know, get prepared and find the stream I wanted to watch. And, uh, but nobody really cared. Uh, and you know it's interesting now, like w- with Vichy, all these p- talents that are coming up, they must have come up, you know, gotten into chess twelve or thirteen years ago. You know, when he yeah. either maybe he won when he won the FIDE World Championship, he played the reunion match, or or maybe yeah. when he was facing to follow. I mean, you know, that's uh, that's something that's uh, very understated, and it's just funny to me that you mentioned cricket because it's like the same thing with cricket. I, I went to like a hookah bar a couple of months ago, and they had cricket on on the TV. And this is just me being an ignorant American. I had no idea that like, you know, 100,000 people were, were in a stadium watching cricket. That's something that it doesn't get played in America at all. So I think maybe some of it has to do with just the way the Western world understands India. But yeah. uh, but but Vichy is, uh, is like one of my favorite players ever. And like, uh, I, I think that I really hope that like, you know, he gets, uh, as time goes on, people really appreciate this, this aspect. Of the yeah, practice. hope so too. Yeah. All right. With that being said, I want to move on to the the sponsor section because, as many of my listeners know, sixty four a chess podcast is sponsored by Aim Chess, a division of the Play Magnus Group. Uh, you can use your code uh, David thirty to get thirty percent off your first month uh, with Aim Chess. Uh, I use Aim Chess for my own improvement. I have said many well, lovely things about it. I can't recommend it enough. And we're gonna do a little bit. I'm just gonna ask you a couple of rapid fire questions about chess. Yeah. Uh, and uh, we'll just see how it goes. So, are you ready to enter the the challenge? Yeah, let's go. Let's go. Let's do it. Okay. First question is: uh, Are you knight or bishop? Uh, bishop. Is it like? Uh, is there any specific reason or? Well, the only reason I can come up with is that uh, on the white side, I've been playing the Nimzo for many, many years. Mm-hmm. Well, I love my pair of bishops. Yeah, so it's, I, I I started playing the Nimzo with White finally, and I, I it's uh, it's uh, yeah, the Bishop pair is you really learn how powerful it is. You get them on the right squares. Uh, no. Next question: Are we kind of touched on this? Uh, are you rooting? This is who are you rooting for? Are you rooting for Carlson or for Nepomniachtchi this year? Ah, I would be rooting for Nepomniachtchi. So you're because... rooting for the underdog. You're the first person to root for Nepo, by the way. No, I, I think Magnus is winning. Yeah. But I, I, I just like a, a bit of disruption. And I think for the chess world to see that Nepomniachtchi would win and that Magnus would start chasing him, 
and and the arguments you probably get on Twitter between them and and in the next couple of tournaments, I think it would bring so much excitement. It would be that, astonishing. Yeah. It would be like yeah. uh, like when Oiva beat Alakine or something. Like yeah, that, I mean, kind of, uh, yeah, no, that's true. I I I said this last uh, last week on the podcast that um, you know, there's a lot of these narratives about how chess is a bunch of boring draws or whatever, and by necessity for Nepo to win this, I think there's going to need to be some crazy exciting games to show that there's still a lot of life left and. Incessant yeah. uh, silence. So, yeah, in that sense, I'm also rooting for Nepo, but I think I have such a soft spot for Magnus that I'm. I don't think I'll actually. If if it was actually you know game eleven and it's like Nepo's up by half a point or whatever, I, I'm not sure that I could. Uh, well, he's be up by a full point, I suppose, but I, I don't. I'm not sure I could really have the heart to. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, here's a third question. Uh, where is your favorite place where you've ever played chess? Oh. I think the the first one that that uh, comes to mind would be the Manhattan Chess Club. No, rest in peace, Manhattan Chess Club. No longer, uh, or you mean the Marshall? Or was the Marshall? Maybe it was there. It doesn't exist anymore. I I thought it was Manhattan, but it may have been Marshall. I'm sorry. I need to look it up. I know. Was it in the north, higher part of New York, or more in the south? I don't know if you remember that. I, I I only know it was in Manhattan. Yeah. And uh, I was there in when was this? I think two thousand eight or something. I think it was still around back then because Manhattan, Manhattan there was a bitter rivalry between the two. Yeah. And Manhattan Chess Club is currently closed. Unfortunately, it closed in two thousand two. So. So, so then it must have been the Marshall. Yeah. Well, Marshall is my native club. That's where I play and I lose a lot of games. So it's yeah. beautiful. I can't say enough nice things about the Marshall Chess Club. Yeah. I love it there. It's also a lot of history. Uh, yeah. When uh, when I was, uh, you sit on board one and it's the table that Magnus used against Sergei Karyakin. That's pretty cool. It's just. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, I faced it way before that. Yeah. But uh, what I still remember is the um, the feeling I got when I walked in. Yeah, the the atmosphere, the ambience, that that is really special. I yeah, I agree. It's a very nice atmosphere. Also, that you see, like uh, they have like uh, relics from like a Capablanca's World Championship matches, some of Frank Marshall's cigars, all these books there that are like super old and uh, a, a very welcoming atmosphere. And you know, also like in the context of, I think American chess too is kind of understated. I think maybe I don't know if it's just because people like to rag on Americans when it's like not their their sport, but. I mean, America has a very uh, significant role in in chess history. That uh, obviously, I think a lot of it comes down to Fisher, but there is a, like a lot of rich uh, history with like the U.S. championships and stuff like that. that I don't think uh, is really at the the forefront of these kinds of stories that people tell. A lot of focus. True, but I also like to add something here that uh, we just talked about the chess boom in in India. Yeah. And I think I wouldn't be surprised if in 10 years from now, you will see the same boom in the U.S. I'm praying if, for that. It, it, yeah. It, it, if I just look at how active Americans are on Chessable, how many of them reach out to me with questions and, and are truly interested in chess improvement, uh, I, I don't think there's any other country where, where I get so, much, so many questions from where there's so much dedication and I just see that the infrastructure is trying to, is starting to build there. Uh, there's Sinkerfield, uh, who of course is, is doing a lot. Phenomenal job, yeah. Yeah, but 
but I also see, and I, and I think that's really essential for future success. A lot of coaches and, and trainers at say 2100 level. So it's not just grandmasters because in, in my experience, uh, an amateur trainer is usually a, a much better trainer than a, a GM. A GM is thinking so quickly that often uh, these people uh, are just showing some standard material and some exercises and not really caring truly about the student. But the, the number of 2,100, 2,200 coaches that I see in the US doing it as a full-time job, uh, really dedicating themselves to, to helping their students. I think 10 years from now, we'll see a very big chess boom in the US. I've had, I've had a couple of guys like that on my show too. And I was, I was, I was a very, very impressed by that dedication as well. Like just going just off the top of my head, JJ Lang and Derek Wilder, uh, Gopal Menon. You guys can check out those episodes. I love recording those yeah. episodes, but they're also, uh, the, yeah. And also on Twitter, you have a lot of guys like that who are very active in, in coaching too. And I, it just basically for free, just for the love of the game. And I think yeah. I, 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 I am praying for that kind of boom. I I, th I really think it just comes down to whether the people who are appreciating the game now they teach it to their kids, <laughs> and whether there's an infrastructure for those kids to to play in a healthy competitive environment. But I mean, I I would love to see chess become more popular. Uh, yeah. Moving on, um, who's your favorite chess player of all time? Ah, uh, that has to be Fischiano. Okay, there you go. And, and 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 not just as a player. I think uh, for two reasons. Um, first of all, as a human being, I think when you think about the world of politics in, in, in chess, uh, the, the feeder presidents he had to deal with, and then always staying out of trouble, yeah? despite all the games that were played, some of those games are actually described in the book, uh, I find very uh, inspiring how he, he managed to do that. We talked a bit about the, the chess boom in India. But I also think um, Vichy is someone who came at the top uh, before the engines were strong and before there were really databases. And he was still a world champion when the databases were there and the engines. So to maintain your title while uh, your chess world is, is so disrupted, uh, I find very impressive. And I know very few world champions who survived such a big uh, disruption within the game itself. I mean, even in Croatia a couple of months ago, he, he was such a strong result, you know, coming off the pandemic and, you know, Vichy already being at like 50 years old. And, and that I, I thought that was uh, incredibly impressive, especially compared with, with, with our boy Gary Kasparov, uh, who yeah. had such a good, uh, no, no disrespect to, to the GOAT, of course. But, uh, but yeah, that, I mean, that, that does, I think it really does say a lot about, about Vichy's chess. And also, yeah. you know, the way he adapted from such a fiery, aggressive player into, such a you know almost universal player uh, you know his later years as holding the world championship being able to do so much uh i think yeah i i, I think vichy is uh I, I mean i've said enough nice things about vichy today but uh if you guys want to I, <laughs> I just want to am i allowed for a second option i i, I just want to uh, raise some curiosity it, it's not maybe my my favorite person but someone who's truly underestimated in the chess world is Ruben Fine. And if you start analyzing his games, and I know this, this will take some effort, you will actually see that a lot of his ideas uh, are being used still today. Wow. And, I've, uh, and that's something that not many people are aware of. 
I was not aware of that. And he's a, he's an American too. Yeah. I know all I know is that he 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 became like a lawyer and died broke or something. Unfortunately, he was not able to play chess professionally. Yeah, and I I think there are a couple of books on him, and if you start studying those. But this is not for chess improvement. But if, if you're really interested in, in making the parallels and, and also I, I think you could give a kind of workshop masterclass on opening ideas he invented that we still see nowadays. Wow. Yeah, wow. That's, uh, I'm going to check out some of his games now, I guess, as I know what I got to do next few days. Yeah. That's what I'm doing for improvement now. I, at this point, it's, it's just basically only master games. I just I like reading master games. I, I I've kind of realized that the the you know the positional books are are very hard for me. So I'd rather just try to learn from the best and you know take ideas from them. But it, it, even there, uh, in terms of chess improvement, I think many of the master games are are still not the best way necessarily to improve. Um, yes, it helps to analyze them. And, and then I would always recommend books with very clear uh, annotations. Mm -hmm. So uh, move by move uh, kind of explanations. And, and actually, there are very few uh, good books on, on this. But the part that, that many people underestimate is that um, when it comes to chess improvement, the first part is understanding an, a certain piece that's being taught to you. Uh, and that could be from the book. That the master game, it could be a coach that's showing you something. But the fact that you understand it doesn't mean that you're a better player. Yeah. Uh, I sometimes make the parallel that if I go to a museum and I uh, get a tour guide, then the tour guide can explain to me fantastic paintings, but it doesn't mean I'm a better painter myself. Right. So the second and the third step that, that you really need in terms of chess improvement is, second of all, remembering it. So actually, when you analyze a, a master game and you pick up a certain lesson, then you may uh, want to put a diagram in a separate file and just revisit that specific diagram with some of your own words a couple more times. And then the third part is even more difficult because it's almost subconscious. You need to integrate that with the rest of your chess knowledge. And that sometimes only happens six or 12 months after yeah, you study. I was just about to say, I've, I found that, you know, I, I'll read a book and then only a year later, really, you actually suddenly, I don't know where there's an improvement. It's because I think stuff yeah. just sits with you for a long time and something clicks. Yeah. No, that's, but that's, that's, great that's, that's that second part. On, on taking out the lesson and putting it in a place where you repeat it, that's often underestimated and it, it's so crucial. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I will definitely try that with the diagrams. It's uh, I, I've seen other people on, on Twitter doing that too with like flashcards and stuff. And I kind of, I didn't really know what to think about that, but I'll try it. I'm very interested in improving myself. I, I've always, uh, you know. Well, as I, as, as I said at the start of the show, when people have questions on, on chess improvement, just connect with me on Twitter. I'm, I'm happy to answer questions. It's very good to know. Yeah. Well, I have two more questions. Uh, well, three more, actually. I think yeah. I, I, one of them, I, I know what the answer is going to be. Uh, but uh, first of all, uh, what's the favorite game you've ever played? I don't know if you have a memorable uh, result against somebody in your career or if it was just a memorable uh, match that you played. Um, there are a couple of games that, that come to mind. Uh, there, there is a game that I won with which I made an international master norm. 
so that was that was quite special because obviously I, I was nervous before that game, and it's actually in in the chessable course because I won with the Leningrad. Nice. So I was in a must-win situation in that final round, and I, I managed to win. But I, 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 even if I talk about it now, I, I still remember how nervous I was during the game. So that that is a very special game, and also I remember my first win over a grandmaster. Uh, and, and that was quite special for me as well, because I, I was already in, in a 2300 rating where it would be normal that every now and then you win against 2500. But when I was analyzing my results, it was like I was very good in, in beating players with a lower rating and I was losing everything against yeah. stronger players, but literally everything. I think I, I once did an analysis of, of my results over 2450 players. And I got to two points out of twenty-five or something. Not not something not something to be proud of. Proud of, yeah. Well, it's probably better than what I would do. So that makes you feel better. <laughs> yeah. But I, I remember this first win against the grandmaster, who was even uh, another hundred points stronger. Yeah, that gave a very special feeling. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I hope to beat a grandmaster someday. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's it, it, it's still not a regular thing. Yeah. Do you play? Do you like play Blitz online and stuff against? Do you you face like Grandmasters every now and then? And I, I sometimes do, but I I only do it as as a uh, way to practice my openings. Mm -hmm. uh, because um, chess for me is a hobby. I I, I want to have fun, and I find that if I play too much online, I get frustrated uh, with 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 my own mistakes and 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 the results. Uh, so I, I decided at some point that I should not play it for any kind of rating anymore. And basically what I'm doing is I'm, I'm playing one game and immediately after that game, looking up the opening. So it, it, it's, it's very rare that I play more than three Blitz games in, in one day. That already uh, might be an hour, hour and a half if you add the time for looking up the opening. Um, so yeah, I, I sometimes play, but, but not a lot. I, I do the same thing actually. I don't know if I it's all, basically anytime I play Blitz, the first thing I'll do is I'll look at the Lee Chess database. I don't have chess base or something, but I always am trying to see where I could improve in the opening. Yeah. And it may be good to share is that while writing the book, the Anand files, it was so busy on top of my day-to-day -day job that I uh, basically stopped playing myself. Uh, wow. And and as a result, my chess level dropped uh, quite a bit. So I'm now in, in low 2300s and um, I'm currently a senior leader at, uh, at Royal Dutch Shell. But at the end of the year, I'll, uh, I'll change and uh, will continue with my uh, coaching company, both chess coaching, but also uh, coaching uh, CEOs and se senior managers. And um, the other thing I want to do then is start my own improvement journey again and see if from low 2300s, I can get to the international master title or maybe even more. That'd and really I'll, I'll, I'll definitely tweet about it and people can ask questions on, on how I'll go about it. Yeah, that would, that would be really, that would be a lot of good content for people too, I think. Fantastic. Yeah. Uh, you know, actually now something, you, you, we've talked a lot of, on this podcast about um, chess improvement, no shortcuts, you know, the kinds of the mistakes people yeah. make. Uh, it seems like, you know, I, I had, I had uh, the, uh, now the CEO of, uh, of chessable a geared vendor yeah. great guy yeah um he but he explained to me uh on the show a little bit about how like dutch chess works 
uh, where you really are taught from a young age, like all the basics and everything is kind of taught like together, kind of like the Soviet school, but a little, I think a little yeah. more universal, a little less academic. Do you think that it's some of your philosophy comes from that kind of approach that, you know, maybe to le learn everything together rather than look for, uh, you know, ways to improve with just, just purely with, with a book or something? No, if, uh, to some extent, I, uh, he may have referred to the STEP method, yeah. which is also available in, in English, which is an absolute brilliant method, especially for for children who want to pick up chess. But um, uh, in fact, I would say any any Dutch grandmaster under the age of 40 grew up with that method. Uh, so the Aaron Lamise, for example, uh, uh, Anis was maybe already too strong, but any other any any other grandmaster grew up with, with and, and were taught chess through through that method in the Netherlands. But now I think in in, in my case I apply a lot of uh, the lessons that I learned, the knowledge that I experienced as as a leadership coach in in the chess world, and 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 that's combined with the fact that. Um, uh, there's a passion for me in, in helping people. And that goes together with being transparent and honest. And I feel that in the chess world, especially chess publishers are, are abusing this, this terminology around chess improvement to sell more. And, and that gives me a lot of frustration and, and trying to do something about that because so many products are, are pitched as, as improving, uh, helping to improve your level. And I think if, if you ask the average adult chess improver on the books they have at home that they went through and they didn't see their rating increase, that's probably a very common shared story. And I, I just want to help people to, to, to change that. that. So I think a, a lot of my energy is coming out of that frustration combined with the lessons that I, I picked up in the business world. That's, uh, I, I appreciate the insight. It's something I needed to hear and I'm sure other people too. Because I've I've definitely bought too many books, um, but it's okay. Uh, support chess authors is important too. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I had two more questions. First of all, uh, what's your favorite game that somebody else has played? I don't know if you have a particular favorite, like in your mind, or these are tough questions. I know. Yeah, it, it's very hard, uh, especially if you if you want to give somewhat original answers. Because clearly everyone knows about uh, Gary's game against Topolov. Yeah, uh, I, I showed that two days ago to my research advisor. We, we we met actually to play chess at this this bar I mentioned, and I I showed him this, and he's like something like twelve hundred, thirteen hundred, and he was like he had never seen it before. It's a fantastic. Yeah, game, but... yeah, probably better to show than than, than to beat him. Huh? <laughs> oh no, we I play we played a lot of chess too. I I, I had to. Oh play okay, too. but. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah. No, I think there there's so many great games, but again, I think um, for me a great game is is a bit of a an artwork, and if you initiate it yourself, then uh, you see certain things. It may even give you emotions over over beauty, for example. But then I think as someone explains it, or even the player himself annotates it. Uh, written or on video, it becomes even more beautiful, and you start seeing the different layers. And 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 for me, that's uh, just the case with some of Fishy's games because I was able to to actually uh, watch him uh, analyze it in a, in a post mortem, yeah, 
explaining such a game. So for me, uh, I would say the most beautiful game is probably uh, the games three and five in the first match against Kramnik, where he played the, the Slav. This is such fantastic, brilliant stuff. Beautiful, beautiful games. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and that connected to, to my good friend, Brustam, who, who basically convinced Fishy playing this by saying, uh, are, are you having some balls? And 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 by by being able to to speak up to such a chess hero who's so much stronger than you in in that way, I find very special. I don't see anyone talking like that to Magnus, and and so for me that connection to that piece of art is is very special. And these two artworks are are so connected to each other that uh, so for me those two games that that would be my choice. And by the way, so game three uh, in that one, that's the one with the hat move, right? That's with the yes. five, yeah. That, uh, I mean, I never, I don't think I've ever seen so much space in a chess book ever dedicated to one move. You talk about <laughs> this big analysis and then the press afterwards. I think it's like 18B5 or something like that. Like <laughs> Nigel Short did some analysis. Uh, yeah. It's the move B4. B4, sorry, B4. The 18 yeah. B4 or something like that, or 19. I Whatever yeah. it was. Uh, like, I, I had these games. I literally, I had that whole game three memorized up until I flew here. I mean, yeah. I, I literally, I was, I would, I, when I flew to San Francisco on the, on the, on the plane, I was playing through those games, trying to see if I had it by memory. I still had it. And I yeah. Mean, yeah, game three is a, is a masterpiece. Yeah. And it takes two also. It takes two players to create a masterpiece. Well, that, but also maybe in addition to that, uh, when that game was played, I was playing in the European Club Cup, uh, which is uh, the European Chess Championship for club teams. Right. And uh, when I explain to my non-chess friends, I always say, oh yeah, I play in the championship. Which of course <laughs> is a little bit exaggerated. But it's okay, it's okay. They don't need to know. <laughs> exactly. It, it starts a nice discussion. Yeah. But I, I, I was playing there and when I was done with my game, uh, I, I went out and, and there was outside a big room with a very big screen where the games of the World Championship were, were portrayed. And I was standing there next to Peter Switler, uh, who uh, I had uh, not met before that. Afterwards, uh, many years later, I once had dinner with him, but at that point not. And we were uh, analyzing that position together. And I'm just like a 2300 player. And the big Peter Swither is there standing next to me. And he was completely amazed as well. Yeah, it's and, phenomenal. It's crazy. And, and, and it's those kind of personal memories that make, make this piece of art even more special that later I write about it in the book. I've discussed it with Fishy, with, with his seconds. But it, it all started when the very first time I saw that position was when I was done with my game, walked out, and I was standing there next to Peter Swither. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic game uh, for sure. I actually think maybe that I think what I'm gonna do tonight is I'm gonna open it up again. Now yeah. I'm, I'm already feeling uh, I, I want to see that game again. Yeah. And uh, I guess we're gonna we're gonna close this uh, episode right where we started. The final question I usually ask is uh, what's uh, what's your favorite opening? I think I know what the answer is gonna be. Yeah, it's a, it's Leningrad, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, many years ago I would have said uh, maybe the Sicilian Rouser. Uh, but then one day I started calculating my results and they were not as good as I thought they, yeah, they were. <laughs> all been there. Yeah, so uh, I, I normally don't play the browser anymore. 
But uh, now, uh, clearly, my Leningrad is, is my lifetime uh, companion and uh, fantastic results, like I said, uh, helped me improve by 200 points. So, yeah, very happy with that. Yeah, so, I mean, maybe, yeah, so obviously you guys can check out the course. You know, you obviously can check out the course, but I, I, something just popped in my head, like, I think with, with chess openings, it's very important to find the opening that suits you and not the opening you want to suit you. You know, yes. like, uh, if, if I, that's kind of what I've been learning uh, the hard way that I'm not as much of a aggressive tactical player as I thought it was. And then now switching the openings to stuff that's a bit more solid or a bit, you know, something a little more with long-term plans, I think has suited, has helped me a lot, actually. And, so, and there's so much truth in that because the mistake people make is that they think that if an opening is well explained, that they can play it. But it's not just about the fact that it's well explained. It, it also needs to fit in terms of how much you can remember. Yeah. For example, I, I played, I used to play King's Indian myself, and there's way too much theory. There was no way I could remember that. I've studied the Grunfeld, and, and in every game I was playing the Grunfeld, I was always sacrificing a pawn with black to make a draw. I don't want to play chess just to make a draw. No, of course. So that that's how you find out. It's it's not just good explanation because I think nowadays on any opening you can find good explanations, but you really need to find something that fits with you. But they're both similar to uh, to the Leningrad, also with the Fanchetto. But I think especially with the King's Indian, there are so many different kind of pawn structures you need to memorize. And yeah. for some people, that's uh, someone I had recently an NM from. Uh, an NM from England, they had, they had, uh, they love that about the Kings Indian, that there are all these, uh, structures in the middle. But I, for me, that's like a nightmare. I don't want to have to know six pawn structures in the center and all the plans against all of those. I, and also the way, all the dynamics you need to look for. So, uh, I think maybe for people, I, I know you said this on Twitter to someone a couple of hours ago that you, you consider the Leningrad Dutch to be improved Kings Indian. Yes. And yes. Why, why exactly? Is it just that, that kind of structure thing or? No, I mean, first of all, your pawn on f5 is immediately there from move one. You don't need to go like in King's Indian, first back with your knight, then play f5 and go back. So it, it saves two tempi. So there's there's some substance be behind when I say it's an improved version. Uh, but also, I think for amateurs, the, the King's Indian, if I uh, look, for example, at the th theory, if, if I look at these uh, terrible grandmaster books from Contronias, who, who wrote five uh, volumes on, on, on the King's Indian. And of course, it, it's fantastic. And now Gawain Jones also. It, it, it's fantastic material. There's no way I can remember this. Yeah. Well, if, if I look at my, my, my own Leningrad, most of the lines I know, and I mean, I was close to 2400. I know till about move 12, move 13. And after that, I've seen many plans. I have an idea where my pieces need to go to. But I don't know the exact move order. And, and that's so relevant for my level because after a busy working week, there's no way on a Saturday afternoon when I play that I can remember theory up to move 23 or, or that I can even see the difference between one line and another. So the first 12, 30 moves, yes. And then after that, I need to know the plans and, and, and why something is good and why, why not. But I don't need to know the exact move order. Yeah, so... Uh... Any 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 last remarks about the course uh, before before we wrap up the episode? No, I I think uh, not just the course, uh, but in general, uh, chess improvement is about fun. And Thank you for I, saying that. 
Yeah, I think it's it's so underestimated. I see so many people saying you should study A or you should study B. B. Let's say you should take uh, 100 end games you must know, which is, is a great book, no doubt about it. But if it's not fun for you to study, don't do it because playing chess is a hobby. If if you get most of the f- out of playing bullet chess, just do it, even though it, it doesn't help you improve. We're talking about a hobby. Chess is supposed to be fun. Right. And and, and don't compromise on that. I, I completely agree. I mean, I, I, I've, that's been a recurring theme of the last couple of episodes. I've talked a lot about, you know, obs- like obsessions over ELO or whatever. I, chess is just a game for most people. I mean, for some people, it's a career. There's a lot of money there, too. But uh, for, I think, you know, don't do something if it's not fun. And so that's exactly, you know, the last thing I'll say about the book, um, the non-files, I, I've read, read a bunch of PDFs and stuff, and that's all very important for chess improvement. But that was like the first book that I can tell you, I was reading the book and I had like a smile on my face the whole time because it's exactly what I was looking for. It's not, you know, it, I wasn't looking, going into looking for improvement, but it, all the, the, the stories and all of the explanations and all these insights that you get and all the games, so many games in the book. I was just, it's such a rich book. So I guess what I'll say is uh, you guys should uh, definitely check out the uh, Leningrad Dutch Lifetime Repertoires on Chessable. Um, and, you know, that's going to, if you, you know, that's going to give you some money in your pocket, of course. You have a lot of hard work into that course. Uh, rewards for, you know, quality over quantity. And then uh, I would say if you're interested in chess history or looking for something different, just a kind of a very interesting book, something to, you know, sit for an hour or two a day with a cup of coffee like I do. The Non-Files is a fantastic book for that. I highly recommend it. And like uh, Michiel said, uh, just uh, look at the Amazon reviews for that book and you'll understand why. Uh, there's a reason. It's a, it's a fantastic book. I'm really grateful to you for, for coming on the show and, and sharing some insights about the book and your course and, and talking chess improvement with me. Really appreciate it. Love to do it again sometime. Um, and yeah, thanks everybody for listening to the podcast. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at 64 podcasts. You can follow me on Twitch, please. Uh, chess cosmos. Uh, there's gonna be a lot of content with that in the next few months. So stay tuned for that. I'll probably tweet about it soon. Um, and, uh, thanks again to aim chess for sponsoring the episode and the channel as always, you can, uh, use code David 30 for 30% off. Uh, Michiel, this was a fantastic, uh, episode. Had a blast, and uh, I hope we can uh, talk again soon. Hope so too. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next week.